Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, A Love Story. I really enjoy reading the books that I then interview the authors about and what they've written. I pick books that I think I will like and that I think you, the listening audience, will like as well. I sometimes know a smidgen about the topic that will be discussed, but by reading the book, I learn, learn so much more. That is the case with today's book and author. The book is The Enablers, How the West Supports Kleptocrats and Corruption, Endangering Our Democracy. It was written by Frank Vogel, who was a former World Bank official, former foreign correspondent for Reuters and the Times of London, and professor at Georgetown University. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Frank Vogel to Politics, A Love Story. Hi, Frank. Hi, so good to be with you. Thank you so much. Well, it's great to have you here. And I'd like to start us off with uh, reading a quote from the book, and we'll go from there. Across the world, leaders of authoritarian governments and their cronies are robbing their people. These leaders are kleptocrats, and they are pocketing staggering sums of cash, which they move through the world's financial systems into investments in the wealthiest Western nations. These crimes perpetrated by the kleptocrats governing Russia, China, Iran, Egypt, Hungary, Nigeria, and many more nations not only impoverish their own citizens, but all of us. More gallingly, we are assisting them in their greed and their grand corruption. Even more worrying, we are complicit in their quest for ever greater power. So does that set up the book? Absolutely, it does. So what can you tell us further about that beginning part that I've just uh, writ, uh, read? The, the word kleptocrats, of course, goes right back to uh, Greek origins. Uh, its definition is the, rule, the rulers who steal the wealth of their nations. So this is not a new story. What is, however, the new twist on it, if you will, is that today there is an enormous confrontation between countries that are democratically led and those that are led by authoritarian regimes. And all of those authoritarian regimes are led by kleptocrats. And what we've seen in the last 10 years, 10, 12 years, is a significant rise in populist leaders who have great authoritarian tendencies and increasing troubles within the democracies themselves. Now, there is a lot of discussion about this issue. And what I try to add to the discussion in this book is to say, these are big political issues. Let's follow the money, because money is so crucial to understanding the dynamics here and the challenges to our democracy. And that money is moved around by what you refer to, and that's basically the title of your book, The Enablers, mostly the bankers, but not just the bankers. That's absolutely right. What we are talking about is the transfer of hundreds of billions of dollars every year around the world from these authoritarian governments 
into investments in the United States, the UK, Canada, and the Western capital markets. In order to do that, these kleptocrats need the services of bankers, auditors, real estate brokers, auction houses, uh, financial consultants based in Wall Street, based in the city of London, based, in fact, in the financial capitals of the West. Those are the enablers. Well, aren't the attorneys enablers too? Absolutely. They, uh, they play a very, very important role in finding the loopholes in our laws that allow this dirty money, and let's call it what it is, it's loot, it's dirty money that comes from, that is stolen from the citizens of so many countries. They find, the lawyers find ways to invest this money secretly so that when the investments are made, for example, in a Beverly Hills mansion, in real estate in Vancouver, Canada, in real estate in many, many parts of the world, you don't know who the true owner of that real estate is. The lawyers have been able to hide that. And it's so important to understand how secrecy allows for this kind of investment to take place. So if it's secret, how do we know it's being done? If you go to London, which one ha British House of Commons committee called London Grad, and they called it that because there are so many Russian owners of properties in the center of London, and these are properties that are empty. The neighbors, the people who are longtime residents there are furious. The communities have absolutely been destroyed because there's so many empty mansions and condominiums in the center of London. And investigations by civil society groups in the UK and then later by the British government have clearly determined that a lot of these apartments are, have been bought by Russian, Russian oligarchs as well as many other foreign uh, people who are at least suspicious and they've been bought with stolen money. But until very recently, there was no legal basis to determine who the real owner was. This is changing as we're speaking right now. Is it changing in the United States as well? Because I know many Russian oligarchs have purchased large apartments in Manhattan as a for instance. And, but no one really knows because as you pointed out, layer upon layer upon layer of offshore uh, companies uh, are in between the original owner and the listed owner. So how can we find this out here in the United States? You said it's already starting in uh, Great Britain, but what can we do here? Well, early this year, in early January, the U.S. Congress passed the Corporate Transparency and that called on the U.S. government to define regulations to unmask these secret owners, to end what is called beneficial ownership, the way in which they hide their ownership. And we can get into that in a second. But as a result of that law, on the 7th of December of this year, the U.S. Treasury issued regulations that are now open to comment, but should come into force in the next three months or so, that specifically hit the real estate market and specifically say that real estate brokers 
must know the source of money for purchases of real estate in the United States. This is a huge blow to the legal community, and we hope it's a blow to the kleptocrats as well. Well, this was a long time in coming, and weren't there both uh, the lobbyists and members of Congress who were resisting this? Uh, and so, therefore, it's taken a long time to get this enacted. It's taken about 10 years. Uh, if you go back to the first efforts in Congress, it's taken about 10 years. But I'm still worried. And I think all of the people listening to this uh, program should be worried. It is one thing to define regulations. It is another thing to ensure enforcement. And a major theme for me for a long time has been that the lobbyists for the real estate industry, for the lawyers, the American Bar Association, for the bankers, have been very, very effective in being able to use their influence to reduce efforts by Congress to increase the funds available for monitoring the enforcement of the regulations, for investigating possible crime, and then for prosecuting. If we don't have real resources for enforcement, these regulations will be, you know, just lying on a shelf somewhere. Well, look at the fight in Congress just recently about whether to increase the funding of the IRS to go after the wealthiest people who are not uh, avoiding tax, but evading tax. That's against the law. Avoiding is using the legal means in order not to pay tax, but evading is outside the law. Absolutely. And it, that was a battle. And that's why you can understand my concern that the anti-money laundering regulations and laws, which are getting tightened up and which President Biden has publicly announced in a brand new strategy, they are really going to go after all of these criminals and their enablers. I'm worried because we need to resource the FBI, the Treasury, the Justice Department in order to really ensure there is enforcement. And um, there is, of course, as we just discussed, the attempt to stop the enforcement. Now, I don't understand the thinking of members of Congress who are sworn into office to uphold the laws and the, of the United States and the Constitution, and yet they are trying to subvert it. What can we do? Well, I think it's a very important philosophical debate and the practical debate. The philosophical issue is the one, of course, that the bankers and these enablers are putting forward, that it is not the role of government to enforce overly tight regulation. That regulation undermines the free markets and the free enterprise system. That sounds good. And in a way, you have to have a lot of sympathy with that. However, the era of real deregulation that started in the late 1990s in the financial industry encouraged risk-taking by the major financial institutions and led to the subprime mortgage crisis. It led to the Great Recession and really the greatest crisis in finance in this country since the 1930s. That should be a warning to everybody that you can go too far in deregulation. And therefore, the practical answer is we need balance. We need to have 
clear rules and those rules need to be clearly enforced. And certainly when it comes to criminal activity like tax evasion or like illicit uh, money flows, dirty money, these rules have to be clear and they really do uh, have to have meaning. And philosophical arguments that somehow or other this undermines free enterprise, actually it's the very opposite. Free enterprise thrives when everybody knows the rules and the, le- and the playing field is level for everybody. Well, I think uh, Milton Friedman was the one person who espoused self-regulation of financial markets in particular. And yet he was so proven wrong by reducing the regulations. We had all these scandals that have now arisen, like LIBOR, for instance. If no one is watching the people who are making the rules for uh, the 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 point of where um, interest rates should be priced and all these other things about money moving around. Well, if there is no regulation and it is the more conservative people who don't want regulation because they want to get away with things, I think. The battle that I see, and I'll give you an example, if I may, is less about more regulation. I think we're getting there. I think we're moving in the right direction there. It is about enforcement of regulation. Let me give you an example. Last year, Goldman Sachs, a very, very prominent major bank in the world, uh, paid fines of over $4 billion because it was caught red-handed doing two things. First of all, it bribed the government of Malaysia so that it could get contracts from the government to issue bonds on behalf of the development institution of Malaysia to help the poor people of Malaysia. It then issued $6 billion of bonds, but executives at Goldman Sachs, working with the former prime minister of Malaysia and his cronies, four and a half billion of that money. In other words, the poor of Malaysia were robbed. Some of that stolen money, by the way, went into a lovely mansion in Beverly Hills. It bought fine art at Christie's auction house. It financed the movie, The Wolf of Wall Street, which uh, was all about corruption. Um, Goldman Sachs paid this very big fine a year ago. It came out and publicly apologized. But nothing happened to the chairman of Goldman Sachs that's important. He did lose some of his pay that year, but the profits have been so big, he's more than made up for that since then. No chairman of a major bank that has been caught like Goldman Sachs was caught, and there are many banks, not one of them has lost their job because of this. Not one of them has been prosecuted. And the fines they pay, frankly, the fines are viewed as just the cost of doing business. So, yes, we have... Uh, mechanisms to try to prosecute, but the number of these prosecutions is few and far between given the magnitude of the problem, because the prosecuting authorities and investigating authorities are under-resourced, and at the same time, the top people in these financial enabling institutions are getting away with it. And what people need to understand is that this is corrupting our economy and the world economic system. 
and therefore all people, ordinary people, are suffering as a result. This no crime of corruption is victimless. So in your book, you talk about the Corruption Perceptions Index, the CPI, which has become a widely used annual report, uh, really a snapshot of how citizens and businesses across the world perceive government corruption. The ranking scores go from a maximum of 100, representing no corruption, down to zero. Around 180 countries are ranked, and approximately two-thirds of them scored uh, below 50. So where does the U.S. stand in that CPI? Well, we stand around 20, 20th position. Now, that's a lot better, of course, than Russia, and far, far better than Sudan and Afghanistan and Somalia, who are at the very bottom of the list. But it's far worse than it used to be. We used to have a higher ranking. And part of the reason why it's gone down is because there's been more and more exposure of corruption in our own government. Um, and I think it underscores a very simple point. Corruption is universal. What we need to understand is that in many countries, particularly authoritarian countries, the consequences for victims are far graver than they might be here. And I'll give you an example. In many, many countries, people are living in absolute poverty because there are no decent health services, there are no education services, there are no sanitation services, because the country's governments have stolen the money for themselves. And we're talking about countries that are hugely rich in oil, hugely rich in gold, diamonds, cobalt, you name it. But the people as a whole are destitute because of the massive thefts by their government leaders. And that money, where's it going? It's coming directly into investments in the United States. And in London. In London, in Paris, in Monte Carlo, uh, in all the fine capital markets of the world. So you write that in many of the countries that rank in the lower part of the CPI, kleptocrats and their cronies have total political power. For example, Azerbaijan, Belarus, China, Russia, Egypt, Syria, Gabon, and Equatorial Guinea. In others, powerful politicians are taking their governments down an even more authoritarian road, leveraging their influence to gain an ever greater stranglehold on all institutions of government, starting with the media and institutions of justice, such as in Hungary, Poland, Turkey, and Bangladesh and the Philippines. So I'm, what I'm getting at here is, were Trump allowed to continue on the road that he was on, we might then be mentioned as one of those countries going towards uh, authoritarianism. I'm making a guess here. I don't know for sure, but what do you think about that? There are very, very important aspects of our democracy that are not present in Russia, in Egypt, in numerous of the countries you've just mentioned and I mentioned in my book. First of all, freedom of expression and freedom of assembly. So long as we can keep that, which implies a free press, then we have something of a countervailing power to the authoritarianism 
that, for example, a Donald Trump may like to enjoy. Uh, in Egypt today, there are more than 120 journalists in jail because they dare to print the truth about the kleptocratic government that runs that country. So we have that. We believe that we have a system of laws in this country that makes everybody subject to the law, whereas autocratic countries there, the leaders have impunity. They are above the law. Now, I think that the Trump administration tried very hard to change that balance. But I think that the system, at least over the previous last four years, actually worked. And that the system will prevail through good journalism, through a lot of honest judges, through uh, a sufficient number of American citizens who, in the end, when it came to the elections, uh, decided they did not want an authoritarian leader. But democracy is fragile, and it becomes all the more fragile when authoritarian regimes like China, like Russia, use their dirty money to try to subvert our elections. They interfered in the U.S. election. They interfered in the very recent German elections. Um, and what are they trying to do? They are trying to sow distrust in dem the dem democracy itself. That's part of the consequences of this really important challenge between authoritarianism and democracy. I think that that's Putin's objective is to delegitimize democracy. Uh, it's not going to necessarily help him in, in his country, but certainly it weakens the West. And that's, I believe, one of his objectives, isn't it? I, I agree with you. And that's why I, the subtitle of my book ends with the phrase endangering our democracy. But what we also have to understand here at home is this is such an important threat to our security and to our democracy that we have to be vigilant in not helping Mr. Putin, not helping Mr. Xi Jinping and other of these kleptocrats. And what do I mean by that? One, we are complicit as a government by not adequately enforcing the anti-money laundering laws. Those, the lack of adequate enforcement helps those governments. Two, time and again, we are willing to set aside our fine rhetoric against authoritarianism and against corruption by supporting sales by our defense contractors of weapons systems to those countries. Three, we have a long, long history of supporting natural resource companies, particularly oil companies, in operating in authoritarian-run countries that are rich in natural resources. And in the weapons area, in the natural resources area, we seem to regularly set aside transparency. We allow the deals to take place in secret. And of course, when you allow secrecy, then you also allow for abuse and for corruption. So we are complicit. And we better understand that if we're really going to take on authoritarian regimes, we have to end our complicity. Well, didn't we just or aren't we just about to complete a deal with Saudi Arabia for a huge amount of weaponry? And weren't they running this uh, war in Yemen that were killing civilians left and right? Yes. <laughs> and that's that is the schizophrenia in our 
current foreign policy stance. On the one hand, we rile against corruption and human rights abuse. And President Biden is uh, has taken the anti-corruption rhetoric to a very high level, and I applaud him for that. But at the same time, we are supplying weapon systems to some of the worst countries in the world when it comes to human rights and when it comes to uh, um, to corruption. Because, you know, on all those weapons deals with Saudi Arabia, or for that matter, the United Emir Arab Emirates, the two biggest customers of our American weapon systems, in all those deals, there are aspects of those deals that are held secret. And you know why? Yes. And let me take this opportunity to reintroduce you. For those of you who just tuned in, uh, we are a Politics, a Love Story. And my guest today is Frank Vogel, author of The Enablers, How the West Supports Kleptocrats and Corruption, Endangering Our Democracy. I'm your host, Bob Bushansky. Now, one of the things that we were talking about before is how these banks continually break the law and yet are still allowed to be around. In fact, I, I remember that there were these settlements that are made with the big banks that have been in the past. And in lieu of admission of guilt or prosecution for major financial crimes, larger banks are levied fines, sometimes huge fines. And as you pointed out before, which they consider a cost of doing business and are made to promise not to do it again. In Deutsche Bank's case, they do it again and again and again. Uh, Harry Truman, President Harry Truman, had a sign on his desk that said the buck stops here. Too bad bank executives aren't as honest as Truman was. And just getting uh, to uh, Deutsche Bank as a prime example here, they paid $17.9 billion in fines between 2010 and 2019. If they're the only major bank to have dealings with Trump. Why does this continue? The whole of the banking system today is driven, I think, more than at any time that I can recall, by short-term profit maximization. The bonuses to top executives based on short-term profit increases are absolutely staggering. We are talking about millions and millions of dollars. The pressure from hedge funds, from private equity funds, from all manner of stock market uh, institutions on companies, including banks, to maximize their short uh, profits in order to boost the share price are absolutely enormous. And there is no seeming countervailing force. The result is that boards of directors are only looking at those short-term profits and they reward the top executives based on that and they accept the cost of doing business, which are these fines. The more the focus is on short-term profit maximization, the more the temptation by executives in these institutions to take risks, including violating the law, because they know that enforcement and regulation is weak, and so the chances of getting caught are themselves quite weak. How do we change that? There are two approaches that we need to take, or at least need to consider. 
One is to go back a little bit to an earlier era. And I was very familiar with this because I worked with a lot of banks in the 70s and 80s and 90s, uh, where we had outstanding bankers who were certainly conscious of making profits, but they also were conscious of serving their customers and the public interest. And they weighed those priorities and it reflected in their culture. Um, today, we've got to get back there. And we need a lot of pressure from within the banking community itself to say to the top bankers and the boards of directors, if you are acting against the public interest and clearly breaking the law is against the public interest, there should be penalties. And we need to change the culture of banks to do that. Now, Paul Volcker, who died last year at the age of 90, was an outstanding public servant. The head of the Federal Reserve Board was a man who spent a lot of his time actually working on anti-corruption work. Uh, he, had, he headed various anti-corruption commissions, including one at the United Nations. I had the privilege of working with him. And at the end of his life, he became very, very concerned about the culture of banking, the issues that I mentioned to you. And so I refer to that in the book and I take his example. And there are many others I could mention. Now, the old, in addition to that, you've got to say, hey, there has to be punishments. My students, when they look at all these cases of corruption by different banks and by different multinational corporations, my students say, isn't it about time the punishment fitted the crime? Mm. And we need to look at the law and say, we can no longer allow the chairman and CEOs of these major institutions to go scot-free when their institutions have really committed very serious crimes. You mentioned Deutsche Bank. I could also mention HSBC. They were involved in laundering Mexican drug cartel money. They were involved in rigging international interest rates. They were involved in rigging international currency rates. And yet, one of their chairmen, who I knew well during this whole period, he got knighted by the Queen of England for services to banking. And his successor, who was right in the middle of all these scandals, is now sits in the British House of Lords as a member of the establishment. We have to change that. Wasn't there an attempt uh, a few years ago uh, to get the chief financial officer and the chief executive officer to sign off on all uh, of the financials each year? And therefore, they would then be responsible for them and they could then be prosecuted. And I, I think they were using uh, the a better in a robbery uh, where a murder is committed, who was also convicted of murder, even though he was sitting in the car outside. So all people involved in the crime are equally guilty of whatever the worst crime was. Why? What happened to that law? And what happened to those people who signed those documents? 20 years ago, Enron, the <laughs> biggest, uh, one of the biggest energy companies in the world, and WorldCom, at that time, one of the biggest communications companies, and Tyco, another huge company, were all prosecuted for cooking the books, falsifying financial statements. Those companies basically went out of, uh, out of business, as did Arthur Anderson, the auditor, the enabler of Enron. And the chief executives were sentenced to very substantial prison terms. 
As a result of those scandals, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, named after two members of Congress, was passed, and it did exactly as you've just mentioned. It, it stated that C chairman or CEOs of companies have to sign the financial statements and verify that they are honest. And if it is determined thereafter that they knowingly knew that the statement was dishonest, they could be subject to long prison sentences. They could be criminally prosecuted. Now, we don't have any equivalent to that when it comes to corruption. Mm. And one of the suggestions in my book is that we do exactly that, that we ask the chairman of corporations that every year when they sign the annual report, they sign a statement that the company has not violated any of the anti-money laundering and anti-corruption laws of the United States. If they and and or you know of their other jurisdictions where they operate, if they were to have to sign that, it may make them think twice about really ensuring compliance with the law throughout their institutions. One of the things you point out in the book is that uh, money laundering is a the scourge of the world, and that that is where a lot of corruption starts. Uh, because that money in the system can pay off a lot of people and uh, make them uh, comply with the crooks rather than legal people. In fact, one of the things you said, the scale of money laundering at some banks and the nature of some of the criminal dealings suggest that the prevailing culture in these banks has, at best, paid mere lip service to anti-money laundering policies. So how do you get them to do more than just pay lip service? By doing some of those things you just mentioned? Enforcement, new laws on punishment. But I think we need to go further. I think this issue is so profoundly important to the health of our democracy and to our security today that we need to generate or find ways to generate strong public interest in these issues. If the public if the people listening to your program would write to their congressman and say, pass serious laws to, uh, that ensure enforcement against these enablers and corruption, there may be, in time, a groundswell of support. The fact of the matter is that whilst the bankers and the lawyers and the real estate people and the other enablers are all spending lots of money on lobbying Congress to get no regulation or little regulation. And while they're giving large campaign contributions to increase their influence, there isn't a countervailing public force. There isn't a public out there that's saying to congressmen, enough of this corruption, enough. And I have to just say to you, it is a very fundamental issue today in our, in our politics, because if you look at opinion polls, you will see that trust in government is at the lowest level since such polls have started. Pew started them in 1958, and it's the lowest level. And when you ask people, why is trust in government so low? Many of them say corruption. Well, um, I would guess that you're right. But I would think, uh, Frank, that because of the COVID pandemic and the second wave and the third wave, people... Uh, their attention is diverted to staying alive and staying healthy and not worrying so much about whether the government is alive and healthy. So 
maybe if we ever come back to what used to be normal, and I don't think it'll ever be exactly the way it was, maybe then people can spend more time worrying about government corruption rather than medical corruption. Um, I hear you. And with greatest respect, I disagree. Okay, good. And let me give you, try to explain why. We face a climate change environmental crisis today. We can't wait to the end of COVID to start addressing that issue. Uh, everybody, I think, not everybody, a lot of people understand that. The corruption crisis that I'm talking about is equal, not equal to perhaps the environmental crisis, but comes close to it because it is undermining our democracy as we speak. It is undermining the health of our financial system and it is corrupting our politics in Washington. If citizens want their government to do what their government says they will do, in other words, keep their promises, if the citizens want politicians of integrity to lead this country, a country where there is so much grievance in our politics today and so much distrust, then we have to address issues like corruption. And we can't defer them. And that, you know, the preoccupation with COVID is totally right. But um, even there, uh, with another hat on, because I run an international anti-corruption organization. We're doing so much right now to help civil society in so many poor countries of the world root out corruption in the distribution of COVID vaccines. Uh, so corruption and COVID are not strange bedfellows, alas. Frank, you have a wide bandwidth of things that you concentrate on that you think are important, not just for you, but for the world. But the average person, whether it be American, British, British, or some other country, has a very narrow bandwidth. And I don't know that they could get involved in too many different things at the same time. So maybe, yes, they should. Maybe you'll get some people who could uh, enter into a protest of political corruption, others getting more vaccines out, others getting food to those people who need it. But Overall, it's not like it was a few years ago when people get, could get involved in many different uh, objectives. Yes, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, I understand that. I would only push back slightly and say this pandemic of dirty money coming into our country is not a special interest issue. It is not a partisan issue. If we want free markets to really work, which is a core conservative idea, uh, we have to have fair markets and people have to operate honestly in those markets. Um, the reason why there has been in the past bipartisan support for anti-corruption measures, and at times there has been, it is precisely because people on the right have understood the connection between corruption and undermining free markets. So this is a broad issue. It's not a special interest issue. It's not pushing one particular envelope or one particular piece of legislation. 
But I think the American people have a message through the opinion polls to the government and to politicians that says, we don't trust you guys. We don't trust you guys to do the right thing. And I think that there's a need to strengthen that message to Congress. And I believe if that message got strengthened, then perhaps there would also be action in the area that I'm particularly concerned about, which is financial corruption. Well, I don't disagree with you on any of those things. I, I just, uh, I have, I guess, lower expectations for the public because 71 or so million people voted for Trump. Uh, that, that doesn't give me high hopes for the future. And so many of them continue to, uh, to believe in him and his lies. So if we can't get past that, um, I suppose I'm sort of pessimistic in that sense, not necessarily uh, losing sight of the goals that you want to achieve. I believe in those, but getting there might take a little bit longer, assuming well, yeah. that the totalitarian aspects don't interfere. Right now, as you pointed out in your book several times, control the media, and, and, and it's not the voting. Let people vote, but you count the votes, and that makes the difference. Right. And this is what Trump is trying to do all over the country, is get the people who count the votes to be his allies rather than be independent. I... I, I'm sure you're right. Uh, my, and, I, and I think we could discuss that at length. I, I should just say that uh, my particular preoccupation is somewhat different. Uh, Tip O'Neill, former distinguished leader of the House of Representatives, once said that all politics is local. Uh, I think there's a lot to that. We have just seen the Congress uh, pass an enormous infrastructure bill signed by President Biden to improve roads and bridges and basic infrastructure right across this country. People are going to look at that, not so much on how, what its national impact is, but how it's affecting their locality. If they see abuse in the way in which those contracts for infrastructure are given out, and we're talking about tens of billions of dollars, if they see corruption in the contracting, people are going to be mad. They've got a promise that those bridges will be fixed. And if they suddenly discover they're being fixed far more slowly than they expect at a far greater price than is reasonable, they're going to be mad and they're going to understand this is corruption. So right down to the local level, we risk with the new infrastructure bill, new types of new evidence of corruption. And I think people have to be very, very mindful of this. And back to your concerns about Donald Trump. Don't forget that when he was in office, he fired a whole lot of inspectors general at different U.S. government departments. These are the people who were meant to keep a watchful eye to see that there isn't corruption in government and in government departments. So the public, as we look now at the rollout of the infrastructure spending, needs to be particularly vigilant to tell their local officials, hey, you know, we're watching you. We don't want to see the corruption in our backyard.
Well, um, if we could slow down uh, the money laundering, that would help. If we could have some tweaks to some of the laws, that will help. But there are a, a long laundry list of things that need to be done to change things for the better. And maybe if we take them one at a time, uh, we might have a better shot than try to do everything all at once. I think you're right. And, you know, at the very end of my book, I quote late Congressman John Lewis, uh, who said that in the battle for civil rights, he was regularly beaten up. He was threatened. He faced possible assassination. And to use his words, he kept marching on. I look around the world today and in this country, too, because I have wonderful students as an example. I see so many young people who are so determined to improve the quality of our democracies. They are concerned about the environment in a way that my generation and your listeners should know that I'm a person in his 70s now. Younger people are marching for pr protecting the environment. In many parts of the world, they're risking their lives marching against authoritarianism. They are marching against kleptocracy. There was an Occupy Wall Street movement a decade ago, and I think that will be revived in time because it deals with the enablers. I have great confidence in younger people taking up the baton to do what's best to preserve our democracy. And I think on that agenda, in a higher place than we've seen in the past, will be the issue of anti-corruption and anti-money laundering. So I'm hopeful. Well, I happen to have attended uh, the location of the Occupy Wall Street at Zuccotti Park in 2011. I was in town for a high school reunion, and I was amazed. I had a friend who was a little bit more conservative who said, oh, it, the place must stink. It must be a mayhem. I said, actually, it was quite well organized, and it didn't stink at all. Uh, and what I was most impressed was, with was the signs. And I stood with one of the signs, which said, I'll believe a corporation is a person when Texas executes one. We have a lot to unpack. I hope that people uh, become more knowledgeable and more interested in the issues we've been discussing here today, uh, not just from a short-term perspective, but much longer term, because if we can deal with these kinds of issues, too much money in politics, frankly, that's the core issue. If we can deal with that slowly, carefully, effectively, without going overboard and as a result leading to the populism that, that Donald Trump represents, then I think we can make progress. Uh, but I don't believe it's going to be easy. And I think the financial institutions in this country wield so much political power that taking them on uh, is enormously difficult. But if we don't raise the issues, then nothing's going to change. No. And I think that one of the problems uh, that this all began with was in 2010 with the Citizens United decision that speech is money. Well, my response to that is, Ha! How could speech be money? If you have $10 million to give to uh, a, a super PAC, 
and I have a dollar and a quarter, who's going to be heard? How is my voice going to reach anybody in power? But yours certainly will. There well, has to be something changed about that as well. Yeah, it's not just laws, though. Um, if you look at the political elites, the political establishments of all the Western countries, you will see how well the top lawyers, the top bankers, the top financial people are deeply entrenched in those establishments. And they use the networks. I've worked with a number of these top chairmen, and I've been just amazed at the amount of time they spend networking with political establishments to become part of the establishment and to use their influence that way. And I quote in the book one lawyer on Wall Street who quite blatantly said, it's one thing to know the law, it's more important to know the judge. Hmm. Um, there's an old boys network out there that we also need to address. If we're going to deal with corruption and we're going to deal with these issues, we need to change the laws, of course, on money and politics, but we also need to have transparency into the operations of our political elites and accountability. Well, Frank, one of the problems with that is that uh, Trump and Mitch McConnell kind of stacked the deck against us by installing a whole bunch of judges, not all of whom we would have put in place because they lack the competency necessary to determine whether a law is true or not. So we have that to work against as well. It's like a double wide stream that salmon are going to swim up against. So we take care of one thing and then we get pushed to a different side. So yes, I'm not saying give up, I'm not saying don't work at it, but uh, there were a lot of things that were done, a lot of damage that was done in those four years that uh, Trump was in place. I think I, you're right. Um, but uh, and I don't want to sound as if I'm always coming back to you with silver linings and great news. But one of the most amazing things in the last couple of years that has not got sufficient headlines was that the largest institution in the equities business on Wall Street, a company called BlackRock, oh, yeah. which has $9 trillion of funds under its management, $9 trillion, came out two years in a row with a very blunt statement to companies that said, take the environment seriously, take climate change seriously. And it said to shareholders across the United States, Start investing only in companies that take climate change seriously. If you look at the change in the public statements from Exxon over the last three years, you will see a direct relationship between their behavior, at least in their public statements so far, and the BlackRock statements of the last couple of years. So I do believe that we have huge problems in our politics, and that's major reason why in my book I talk about money and politics. But at the same time, there are other forces out there that are influential. And that's why I also talk about the possibility of cultural change within the banking system itself. There are more and more people, I believe, within our uh, business community who are concerned about values. And they're concerned because they want to keep a free market system going. And um, I won't say I'm putting all my hopes on them, 
by no means. I still want to trust the public. I want our political system to work, but um, I don't see it all in pessimistic uh, hues. Uh, the Department of Defense, um, uh, which is very odd to have had this result in a review they did of the threats uh, to the United States, what they felt in the future, the largest threat that we faced was climate change. They felt that there were some countries that were fertile now that would be arid later, and that would cause a migration, a, a huge migration. It's the reverse, where there were arid countries that were going to be flooding. So uh, they look far into the future to see what threats there might be, and they agree with you that climate change is our biggest threat. But, you know, you don't have to look far in the future. We have today over 100 million refugees in the world. Many, many of those refugees, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, south of the Sahel, are refugees because their land is no longer productive. They cannot eke out a living anymore. Their livestock is no longer able to survive because of climate change and also because of violence in many of these places. As a result, these people are moving north and they're trying, for example, to get into Western Europe. And that's causing enormous problems in the politics there. We're seeing on our southern border here in the U.S. enormous desires by people to get into this country because of violence, but also partly environmental issues in their own countries in Central America. And just to bring this back as a word to my topic, there is enormous corruption involved in the trafficking of migrants. There are agents every step of the way who are trying to extort money from these terribly poor refugees who are desperate. And they are doing it in cahoots with border guards, custom officials, and politicians. And in fact, when we talk about kleptocracy, we should not forget that all the kleptocrats are in league with organized crime. This is not just a question of uh, a kleptocrat just stealing money out of the government. They're involved in all the rackets, human trafficking, refugee mobilization and extortion uh, are just a couple of the horrible crimes that are widespread. So we're seeing that today. We are seeing in climate change, 30% of the world's forests are destroyed by illegal logging. And the illegal logging, uh, which is causing enormous problems for the climate, is allowed because the organized criminal groups that are doing it are paying off politicians to turn a blind eye. They are paying off law enforcement. And if you think that one in three uh, wood products in the markets today around the world is the result of crime uh, and what that does to our environment. And of course, corruption is at the core of this. So we see so much evidence in the world today. And whilst I say to the Pentagon, yes, you're right to look ahead to the future of all this, I also say, I wish the Secretary of Defense would bang the table at the White House and say, we also have a problem now. Um, there isn't enough anger about this. Uh, there's not enough outrage. And uh, and yet corruption and climate change
go hand in hand. Uh, and we need to be sensitive to that. And as you point out, it's the enablers who keep all this going. If it wasn't for the bankers, the accountants, the attorneys, uh, the politicians, uh, this might have either slowed down or stopped years ago. But the enablers are what keep it going. And that's the name of your book. You're basically talking about the enablers, not necessarily the individual corrupt practices that are going on, but the people that keep it going. I, I felt it's so important to draw attention to the enablers because so much of the literature, so much of the public discussion about corruption is about the problems over there somewhere, beyond our borders. These enablers live here. They live in the United States and the UK and Western Europe. Uh, and it's time to shine a light on their criminal behavior. Well, I, I want to say, uh, Frank, that this book as I mentioned to you in one of our emails back and forth, it was like an encyclopedia of information. It's not an especially long book, but it is jam-packed with information that we should all know about. And I want to thank you for being here today. This was an enjoyable conversation, uh, and I think we had much more to talk about, but uh, we are time-limited. And let me just uh, reintroduce you. Uh, we have been talking to Frank Vogel, author of the book, The Enablers, How the West Supports Kleptocrats and Corruption, Endangering Our Democracy. And that's for certain. So, Frank, I want to thank you for being here. This was a wonderful conversation. Bob, it was my honor. I thank you very much for a truly terrific conversation. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.